Kehi, welcome to the metagame. Thank you, Daniel. It is awesome, awesome to be here. So I know you've been called uh, the Oprah for millennials by CNN and the Wall Street guru by Bloomberg. But for the uninitiated, what do you call yourself? Like, how do you describe what it is that you do? Mm. So first and foremost, I... I usually start by saying I'm a father to Amelie and Soraya, my two little girls, and husband to Lisa. And so that's really like the the opener. Um, but when I say, when people ask me what I do, God, it's always such a, it's like, do I want to be snarky? Like sometimes if I'm feeling snarky, I'll say like I'm a professional blogger. Mm-hmm. People are like, what does that even mean? Uh, if I want to be a little bit more formal, I might say, I run a small media and education company. Uh, if I want to be more real, I just say, like, I like teaching people stuff. <laughs> mm, I like that. So those are kind of a few different uh, framings. I would say that the, that the, the Rad Reads mission, which is the company name, and my mission by extension, is to help people lead more productive, examined, and joyful lives. And whenever I decide on what I do, whether it's being on this podcast or making a reel or writing, uh, setting up a new course, I always try to tie it back to, will this help people lead more productive, examined and joyful lives? Yeah. And, uh, the, the word sandwiched in the middle examined is uh, part of the reason why I'm interested in talking to you, because from what I can tell from the distance, it's almost like, um, you're giving productivity advice in a way like a modern Socrates is trying to challenge people to prioritize the things that actually matter in life. Do you agree with that framing? Oh, that's, uh, I don't agree because that gives me way too much credit. Um, (laughs) but what I I do, and and you and I have a shared, uh, teacher in, uh, in Andrew Taggart, Andrew J. Taggart, not the 20 chain smokers, Andrew Taggart. Um, but I do, I, there's a running joke that the informal tagline for Rad Reads is come for the productivity, stay for the existential. Mm. And what has happened throughout this course, and it's actually, you know, when we talk about the business side of things, it actually makes for kind of a bit of a challenging business dynamic. Uh, but I, I love probing, probing mm. myself, probe, challenging my assumptions peeling back the layers uh, of the onions examining the wounds examining the 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 true essence and to be honest um you know this is a creator business i run a creator business in the early days all i cared about was productivity i actually just shared a tweet it's like in productivity in my 20s was about making more money productivity in my 30s was about time autonomy Productivity in my 40s is unpacking my childhood wounds, mm. right? And in each case, productivity was the gateway towards something else because productivity is just a, a, it's a way station, right? You don't, you can't eat productivity. You can't sleep product, sleep on productivity. And so it's always been this way station for me that, that has kind of reflected where I am in my own personal journey, in my own spiritual journey, in my own existential journey. Uh, and so, you know, people who have followed me for a while have kind of come along for the ride. Um, and so ex- be, examination is 
a big part of it, but I'd be lying if I said that was the starting point. At the starting point, mm -hmm. I wanted to be a productivity bro, right? right I just wanted right. to like teach you how to extract every second out of every possible minute. And, you know, I've been writing, I've been talking about productivity for 20 years now. So I would hope, one would hope that there'd be some evolution alongside that. And the examination part is my personal evolution. And it it's unique to me, but it's also, I think, what separates me from others. Again, not from a business perspective, but it's just it's just more interesting to me. I'm, I'm sick of talking about productivity in isolation. Mm -hmm. I've done it for too long. And so I need to find this, this other frame. And this frame I've discovered through, my, through myself and through my teaching and through my writing is really resonant with others. Yeah, and I have a similar experience with that because I do executive coaching and I have framed it from the start as philosophical productivity coaching. And I had a very mm -hmm. similar tagline, just I, I would say this like to my friends and stuff, but people would come for the productivity and then they'd stay for the conversations about God, which is a, mm -hmm. is very similar. Um, I love it. But yeah, so you, you didn't always start this way. You, uh, had a really high powered job on wall street and you had this, uh, you, you know, you overworked yourself and went through this journey and ended up as this teacher, online creator and beach bum surfer dad. Um, so what's the story there? How'd you go from wall street to here? Yeah. Beach bum surfer dad. I like that one. Uh, you can, you can see, see the that. surfboards in, in the background. I'll start with a, a little preamble to the story and the, 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 because it's an important part of the story, which is I grew up as a child of Kimbo, like first generation immigrants. So that, and that's an important part of my story because, well, it's a, because it's my parents, but also they came to New York with very little money, barely speaking English, no family. Cambodia was about to enter a genocide. And my parents followed the very traditional immigrant middle class, you know, playbook, which is work, study hard, work hard, get a good job, make money, be happy, right? It's kind of the five-step first-generation plan. Mm. And I followed, I'm a rule follower. I actually, you know, for the first 30 years of my life, I was a, a, a strong rule follower. And so, you know, that's what, those were the rules of the game. And I put my head down and, and I played those games. Um, so that got me to, you know, computer science, fancy university, Wall Street. And then, as you said, I had this 14-year career on Wall Street. And again, that's where some of the productivity stuff comes in, where I was obsessed with making money. I was obsessed with like status games, particularly like mm -hmm. the status games of, you know, who's of career and, and Wall Street, right? Power, you know, money, power, that, that kind of stuff. And in hindsight, I realized that a lot of that was when I was little, I was shy. I was insecure. I felt very unlovable. I was very extremely skinny. I walked kind of strange. People would make fun of me. I always felt like an outsider. And so in the playbook, it was like, well, if you get money, power, and status, you can wipe the slate clean from all those emotions. Mm. <clears throat> and that was a big motivating force of my Wall Street career. So in Wall Street, uh, I use a lot of tactics. I, I, I would force my analysts to learn David Allen's GTD, like another one of your guests. 
And it would be like cheating. Like people would be like writing their their to-dos on napkins and we'd be like, oh, have you done your weekly review? Like we were a high, high, high performing team because of these tactics. So that led to, you know, financial and status, success, promotions and all that stuff. But what happened was kind of like the hedonic, hedonic adaptation, right? So the first bonus I got was, you know, $15,000. I was like, oh my God, this is like, you know, more than my dad made, you know, his first year in New York in one paycheck. And then, you know, 14 years later, they were seven figures. And for some reason, that $15,000 one felt so much better than the seven figure one. And I think that's where the glimmer of of examination came in. I'm like, Mm-hmm. wait a minute, what if the playbook's wrong? Like they've said, they said more money, you'll be happier. I'm like, I'm a little bit happier, but I'm definitely not meaningfully happier. And by the way, I need so much more. It's like alcohol I need or weed. I need so much more just to get the same buzz from it. And I started to, that was where the examination part came in. And so it was less about an examination an inward examination. It was more an examination like, this thing's fucked. Mm. Like the thing that I thought to be the the way the game is played was actually wrong. And so I don't know how I got the courage to do it. But one day, I mean, I probably deliberated about it for three years. I just said, fuck it. Like, Mm. I can't just, I can't keep living my life like this. Like, I had seen enough of this kind of hedonic adaptation, the baseline happiness, like always mean reverting to that same level of happiness after a win, after a bonus, after a promotion. And I'm like, there's got to be something else out there. And so I just I just quit. without. It. The only plan was to do cool shit for 18 months till I ran out of money, or ran out of money I had earmarked for this next chapter. Do you, um, that was do you have any... Ago any insight into what engendered the fuck it moment? Because I feel like fuck it is such a powerful Mm -hmm. emotion. And Mm -hmm. I think it's actually responsible for more good outcomes in people's lives. Like fuck it (laughs) decisions actually lead to more positive outcomes than negative outcomes. Do you have any idea eight years ago why, why you finally said fuck it? So I think that there were, there were a handful of, of factors. The first one, I remember that um, Wall Street doesn't really reward good leadership. <laughs> it's like mm. the, it sounds so obvious, like now when you look at like the financial crisis, things like that. But I remember specifically, I was a, a high performer, so I always get like you know exceeds expectations. But you know, like your boss always tries to keep you off balance and gives you one like you know meets expectations. And so the meets expectations they gave me was you spend too much time mentoring your team. I'm like, Mm. what the fuck? (laughs) Like, this is backwards, right? By the way, this is the same team that all of my peers are trying to poach people that I train because they Mm. understand GTD, because they're kind, because they're very curious and creative. So I was just like, what? This Like, you guys are just, you're missing the point. That was the first one. The second one is that, that, um, kind of the scarcity versus abundance mindset where, and it wasn't one, there were definitely like specific incidents. uh, And I'll allude to one, but basically the, in hindsight, I could see now that a lot of wall street were people like me, very insecure men that were trying to uh, assuage those feelings of insecurity through power and money. 
and status. And on top of that, they all believe that it was a fixed game, meaning that, you know, like maybe there was like $2 billion of, of profits that could be made and, and that $2 billion would never grow. So you take a fixed pie and a bunch of insecure men, and that just leads to really, really bad behaviors. Um, and I saw a lot of those bad behaviors and I saw them get swept under the rug. And I saw, basically, I saw the worst, I saw a really dark side of, of mankind. Mm-hmm. Um, in greed and envy and, 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 and I mean, evil. So it's not, not like, not evil, like I'm going to kill you, but like a b- very bad intentions, evil intentions. Yeah. Uh, so that was the, the second one. And then the third one was probably, there's, sorry, there's four. And the third one was, I always have been a tinker. Like I was like dabbling in Bitcoin and I had blogs and Twitter accounts for a decade. And, and I would, Wall Street always prided they're like we're so innovative we're so this and they're like 98 percent of the people are still emailing themselves tasks right right and i'm like have you want to try a to-do list app and they're like no why would i do that that's such a waste of time you know and so for a, an industry that prides itself on being innovative they were actually so they were innovated when it suited them and it suited their narrative and i was just a tinker and i was just the weirdo like they were like why are you talking about bitcoin I'm like fine I'm just going to shut up and buy it. It's 300 a coin, right? Uh, so, you know, like that just like there was a disconnect there. And then the last one was probably the, the one you're alluding to the most. The most specific thing was having a kid. Mm-hmm. So I had a child. And before you have children, if you don't have children, like for a lot of people, time just blurs. Like I had a child, my first child at 35. The time between like 28 and 35 is like kind of a blurry seven-year period. All I know is that I went to a lot of fucking weddings. Like that's all I know about that seven-year period. And I worked a lot. When you have a kid, it's like, oh my God, like you are just a blob. Now you now you like smile and it's been a year. Then year two, now you walk. Year three, now you're going to school. Like mm. so it made the passage of time quite stark and measurable yeah and i was just like i could see my kid being 18 and and like being in the same crusty chair with the same commute with the same dirty ass pc monitors and i was just like i'm like no i am watching and and we might talk about this but i I have this like fear of death and fear of like the eternal nature of time but the finite finite nature of time and and all those things were starting to bubble up when I could see how clearly time was moving by with a one year with, with a child. That is so interesting because so I don't have kids, but you just gave me a flashback to when my little brother was born, and he's five years younger than me. But I remember distinctly seeing him grow up, and mm. it was more profound to me to see somebody else grow so quickly than it was to see myself because. I was a kid too, but it's very hard to tell the changes that you're going through. And Mm so it makes me wonder the fact that most modern people delay having children until much Mm -hmm. later in life. And also we're not really in community with like multi-generational communities where we're seeing Mm -hmm. children grow. Do you think um, we're, we're delaying an important maturation process that normally would happen much earlier in someone's life cycle. Wow, that is a deep 
question. The first, the first thing that comes to mind is more is an extension to what you said. Meaning, so I don't know if you knew this, but New York City has the highest rate of C-sections. Mm. And it's because C-sections are very efficient. You can schedule them. You're in and you're out and they're good for the hospital. If, you, if you've got a schedule you need to keep, they're good for the parents. So I think about like things like C-section. I think of another thing like sleep, like sleep training, which is what we did. But sleep training, one of the common methods is cry it out. Mm-hmm. You want your kid to basically get on your sleep schedule. And so you basically what you do, and we did full disclosure, we did this as well. You put your kid in the room and you basically walk out and you just let them scream until they fall asleep. Then like takes like four days and then they were like, oh, no one's coming for me. And then then they sleep through the night. And if you think about like other cultures where, you know, it, it, it's it's absurd to a Western culture, a Westerner where like a kid might sleep in their parents' bed until they're like seven or six or, you know, something like that. Um But then it goes to this point that like we are basically enforcing our demands and needs as parents, Western Mm -hmm. parents, efficiency, scheduling, time management, things like that. And then we are imposing them onto our kids in service of this is probably something we'll talk about. Like what? Like what are what is it in service for more money, like bigger houses? Right. I mean, you and I will definitely riff on the futility or the confusion of what, what it's all, what it's all for. So, so, so that's the, the extension to the point that you made. I think the other thing about kids is that the thing about having kids is that it, it stops being about you. So there's some kind of splintering of the ego in the process of having a kid where yes, I would love to watch every new Netflix show, but like I haven't really done that in eight years because I want to read books. I want to be there for them. I want to be there for bath time, pick, pick whatever activity. And so I think that that and I think in the West in particular, like it's such a culture of the individual. And so like even even with kids, it's like, well, how can my kids help, you know, help me do this, right? You even talk about the way people frame, like, you know, having kids will make you more productive, right? It's mm-hmm. just like, is that the right framing? Like, um, so, so I do, I, I can't really comment on like the delaying of all of these things, but what I can, what I will say is that it's your question prompts me to think about like, what kids teach us and what our behaviors relative to our kids can teach us about ourselves and our society. Yeah. And you kind of painted a picture there with the, the New York C-sections and the, the, the sleep training and stuff where ultimately those constraints that are driving those activities are, they're downstream of prioritizing your work or your institution Mm -hmm. that you're, you're plugged into. Um, mm-hmm. and the C-section thing. So I don't know if this is true, but somebody was telling me that, um, there is a greater incidence of postpartum depression for C-section births, births. And there's not as much oxytocin exchange between mother and child. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. This, I've never yeah. looked this up, but somebody mentioned it the other day. And so it kind of got me thinking, to what extent are we violating um, a healthy, natural order of things by mm-hmm. worshiping other gods? So in this case, it would be mm-hmm. the god of productivity for, for what? Efficiency for what? You know, for mm-hmm. for the paycheck, for the company. And, it, and you could take the, that, that a step further. Um, like a vaginal birth is much healthier for, for the baby just with the whole microbiome and all kind of mm-hmm. all of that, that, uh, and so, which is funny cause then many of those same families will talk about how passionate they are about like organic food. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's it just like, there's a, dis- and, and again, I do a lot of these, I'm not calling anyone out. I'm calling myself out. Um, we did not have C-sections. Um, but there's a million examples of me pointing to something and then doing the thing that I'm pointing to. So this, uh, please don't view this as a critique. It's a self-critique, if anything. Yeah, so um, just kind of coming back to your story, after you left Wall Street, you started Rad Reads. I think this was in 2015, and you sent your first uh, email. Um, and mm-hmm. did you did you have this plan to start a newsletter was that the idea? Because I think in 2015, they were less common. What was the initial mm-hmm. motivation to send that initial email? It's so, um, like I said, I always was a tinkerer. And so I was trying, you know, I had all these batshit crazy. I'm like, let's start Uber for recruiting where it's like, you know, you like you find a candidate and they get like a, it's like affiliate marketing for recruiting. I would just like write these things out and like equip, you know, you remember equip like a quip document and and just like I was always trying stuff. And so the newsletter was just like another thing that I just tried, but it, it actually started in a very, in hindsight, it, it is, there's a personal philosophy of mine, which is if I find something that could be helpful to someone else, I feel a very, very strong sense of duty to share it. Mm. Now, that could be a book recommendation, that could be a life hack, that could be a philosophical question that I use. But that has always been something that that I really deeply feel, which kind of like, if you know what I do now, it it actually makes a lot of sense. Curation, writing, teaching, right? Uh, And so Brad Reads, again, without knowing it at the time, was an extension of that life ethos, right? Even if if two people feel like they, sh- if I know that, if I see that two people should meet each other, I feel a very strong sense of duty to yeah. introduce them, right? And so that that's a very overpowering life ethos. So Radreed started when I was actually still working and I was on vacation and I had just more time to read. And mm. so I, I call it the Twitter arbitrage because, you know, the Wall Street folks, like, you know, they still think Slack is like some weirdo thing, or, you know, in 2023. Um but they, no one on Wall Street was on Twitter. And so I would find interesting articles on Twitter, what you and I would just read in our normal day-to-day life on the internet, what we call blogs. Um, and, I, and I aggregated the list of five articles and sent them to 36 people on a Gmail BCC. Mm. And then the famous last words at the end is like, I don't know when I'll have time to do this again. Because I was still working. Um, and people wrote back, they're like, this is so cool. Like, when's the next one? Thank you for doing this. I really enjoyed Article 3. And then I was like, oh, people like this. And in my head, you know, this is the productivity maximizer. I was like, well, 
I read articles. It's good practice to like write a little paragraph. They weren't even a paragraph, like a mini paragraph on them. These people find it helpful. Like, so it wasn't like purely selfless, but I'm like, oh, there's like a this little flywheel works, right? So that's kind of how it started. And then when I left Wall Street, it became, and again, all accident, this is all accidental. Everything, pretty much everything in my entrepreneurial journey has been uh, accidental, but like, please challenge me or, or probe on that if, if you see fit. But when I left Wall Street, it became a, a bit of a, a calling card. Like, everyone's like, what are you going to do next? I literally had no idea. They're like, you're mm. lying. You, you, you're, you're like waiting out a six-month non-compete, and then you're going to show up at our competitor or something like that. And I'm like, no, 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 I have no idea. But I got this newsletter, and it kind of became this like like this weird thing because a lot of people had this – very few people do what I did, especially at that young of an age and that high, you know high – level of success quitting especially for that quitting yeah and so the people wanted to like i suspect that there was some group that's like wanted to see me fail Mm -hmm. i suspect there was another group that was just curious like i wonder how this is going to turn out and i'm sure there was another group that found it inspiring and there's probably some overlap in that a third of your your email list in the beginning was haters I think that they were seek. I won't say they were haters, but they they wanted me to fail so that they felt good about staying. Yeah, because you're kind of shitting. And I on heard, their I heard some of that hierarchy. stuff came. Yeah, um, some some of that came back to me secondhand. So like, I'm not making mm-hmm. this up. Like, things were said. One person actually said uh, that my wife would leave me after five years. Wow. Within the next five years. Yeah. Wow. So I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> He's a, probably still on email us. Um, so, so that was uh, so. So that's kind of how the newsletter started, and it leads to my second or a second principle, which is I just do things that I find fun, and I think I'm a very different entrepreneur than most. Is that like if something's not fun, I'm just gonna stop doing it. Now, it doesn't mean that I won't break through plateaus of resistance. You know, like Stephen Pressfield, the resistance. But like right mm-hmm. now, I, I knew nothing. About, we met, we bonded over TikTok. I knew nothing about short form video. I'm a, really a words guy, Twitter blogging newsletter. I'm a words person. Um, and I'm like, you know what? There's something happening here. Let me try it out. I think I'm a good storyteller. I think I have okay camera, camera presence. I'm like, let me try it out. They're like so cringeworthy. But I was like, I'm going to try to do 30 days of, of reels. Just because and i'm like this is fun like you got to learn like this you gotta learn hooks you got to learn um like even like where to put your camera you got to learn captioning you have to learn editing you have to then like you got to figure out what people want to listen to then like what do people share like it just opened up this entire domain that i had no idea was Mm -hmm. a thing and after 30 days i was like this is kind of fun i'm gonna do it for another 30 days and we're on like day 95 now. And now I'm going for a year. Oh, nice. I'm not like having, relative to how much work I put into it, it's not like, it probably added like 100 new subscribers. So it's not really like doing the thing I thought it would do, which is like, for me, it's always been about newsletter growth. But what it is doing is like, I'm in everyone's feed every single day, adding a micro dose of value. And people remember that. Uh, and people pay attention. And and random people, come, they're like friends are saying like, oh, yeah, like I started watching your reels. Like they're like, it's like one of the ni- like 
not highlights, it's like one of the nice parts of my Instagram feed. So, so I bring that back to follow the fun. But like, I also had a podcast. I did it for 52 weeks and I just, I didn't like it. Hmm. And everyone's telling me now, okay, you need a podcast. You need, I'm, just, I'm like, I, I think on paper, it makes sense for me to have a podcast, but I'm having way more fun doing short form video. So I'm just going to lean in on the short form video until that flips. Yeah. It sounds so simple. You know, just, just do what you find fun. But I think in practice mm-hmm. is actually quite challenging for a lot of people because in order to know what's fun, you have to have a good relationship with your own taste and your own, mm-hmm. uh, almost like childlike playfulness. And mm-hmm. often that's kind of trained out of you. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're, uh, always editing your impulses because mm-hmm. they're not, uh, productive enough or they're not useful for some sort of goal um mm-hmm. with with the newsletter i'm curious did you did you just start writing like consistently every week at some point did you just commit to a schedule and then you just didn't break the chain on that at what point did it become at what point did you go pro mm. I st- i'd argue i'm still not pro but mm-hmm. um the so there was that first thing and then it kind of was a little sporadic because i was still working and then we should talk about this at some point like partially out of fear fear of irrelevance i'm like i need i need something people kept asking me what are you gonna do now and and i felt like i needed to have a story and so i think partially out of that loss of identity that like identity instability i was like well i got a newsletter like at least it's something i can like Mm. an artifact i can point to but it was fun and I was learning and like, like internet entrepreneurs, all entrepreneurs know this, like you think it's a newsletter, but you also have to think about like branding and you need to think about like web servers and you need to think about spam filters, right? It's like, it's a little mini business and I've always liked the game of business, right? I always tell people and my team included that for me, it's like 80%, like my, my ideal, like kind of life or work frame, they're so fused is 80% creativity, 20% the game of business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I like figuring things out, but when that ratio gets too out of whack, when it becomes too much business, then I'm like, what's the point? Like that's my ego usually taking over. And when it becomes too creative, there's usually some kind of fear of like putting yourself out there, fear of selling, fear of like, you know, asking. Usually for me, it's asking people for money. Mm. And so... I've learned that over the past eight years, that like 80-20 ratio is prob- probably um, my sweet spot. So to, to answer your question, probably like the first issue was in January of 15. I quit in May May 4th, so we're approaching my eight-year anniversary. And I think from May 4th onwards, it was pretty much every single week spanning two kids being born, or one kid, one little one was already born. Uh, two trips around the world, a move to LA. I did uh, two summers ago. I took the entire summer off. And then the three summers ago, I went every other week. And I mm. only started adding a blog post, maybe 200 only, <laughs> 200 weeks ago. We're on 383 right now. Uh, so 200, I've been writing a weekly blog post pretty much for 200 consecutive weeks. Yeah, so that's a lot of consistency. And, um, I remember hearing you say somewhere that one of the best things that you did was stay emotionally solvent 
Mm. So you, you, the way I understand that is that you invested in some of the inner work side of things, the, the things about self doubt, the things about imposter syndrome, the things about, am I actually offering value to people? And by doing that, you were able to unlock the consistency to show up for eight years. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe riff a little bit more on that. What did you mean by emotional solvency? Yeah, it's, um, I might actually bring it back to the short form video because it, like, I feel like I'm starting my newsletter. Like, I feel Mm -hmm. like I'm where I am with short form video. I've like zero followers. I'm spending all this time doing stuff. It's kind of cringeworthy. Um, it's not really like achieving any like business objectives. A lot of people are like laugh, like pointing at me. Trolls are coming out. Yeah. And so, so I think like, so, so I, if that's okay with you for me to use that, because the parallels will be very Absolutely, similar. yeah. Um, so I think the first one is, we talked about it. It's like, why do you do this? It's like, there's like a, there's a pure joy in it. Right. And that joy comes from service. That joy comes from sharing that joy comes from connectivity. Right. So that's one thing. Um, so kind of that self-awareness of knowing what works, what makes you happy, what lights you up. Like, I'm like, really like, as soon as we hang up here, I got like two shorts to film and like, they're ready to go. My studio set up everything. Um, but then there's the other thing. There's like, um, the validate, like needing validation. Hmm. Right. And so it's really hard. And I see this, I see people starting off tweeting, right? Like, like zero engagement on their tweets. Right. And like the first like 30 reels, like zero, like nothing was happening. And I think there it's like, you know, I go back to this question that probably I wore, came out of my work with Andrew is like, who am I without achievement? Right. Hmm. And so you basically needing to be validated from an activity, right? So when you start anything, by definition, you're not going to, like, unless you're a natural genius, but even then, you'd, ha- you'd have to be a natural genius at distribution in this case. Um, but you're a nobody, right? Like, no one, like, just your mom's following you, right? And commenting on your posts and your, your reels and so on. So that need for validation is one where you're like, well, why do I need to be validated? right? You can kind of start pulling at that thread of validation. And right. And so like, I didn't know this before I went into these, these like years of coaching and self, you know, personal work and so on. But like, oh, why do I need to feel validated? Because, well, they're like, there's my ego, right? I want to know that I'm special, right? One of my meditations is like, I'll say to myself, like, like, I am special. And then I'll say I am nothing. I'm special and I'm nothing to like kind of break that dual duality of like specialness versus nothingness. And like, I needed to know, to know that I wanted to feel special, right? Why do I want to feel special? And like why I want to feel special, like as a human is the same way as I want to feel special when I send a newsletter or when I post a reel. And so I think that many people jump straight to the real and the validation and they don't question when they start feeling shitty because they're not being validated. They're like, why is validation important to me? Right. And how do I build up my sense of self-worth? My, what is my essence? Like there's so many ways you and I can talk with some shared language here, 
But for many people, it's just like, oh, no one's validating me. I must suck. Mm. And I, why would I keep doing something that, that I suck at? And on top of that, it's not fun. And on top of that, people are quietly calling my stuff cringe. You can see how, like, I can't even tell you how many people have approached me. But a newsletter is much less public than, than a video. Mm-hmm. The number of people that said, I want to start a newsletter based on my, I'm sure. I'm like, come back to me after 26 weeks and I'll give you all the advice in the world. It's like six people total, hundred like 6%, hundreds of people have asked me that. And I think, so that's that like, you know, people think that they just need to like try harder and grind harder. But really, we have these like emotional blockers that keep us, you know, emotionally insolvent, right? We panic. Like even today, I got a, I got a troll. I was like, you know, some what successful people talk about at dinner. And someone wrote that like, if you're so successful, why are you trying to show people on Instagram, right? And it hurt. Yeah. And it, it, it like, I'm still thinking about it. But like in the past, that might have like kneecapped me off the platform. Mm-hmm. And now I can just kind of laugh at it and I kind of have like, you know, my own ways of reasoning. I can joke, I can joke at it. I can, there's many, many different ways I can look at that. But most importantly, I can, it doesn't uh, really hit at the heart of my sense of self. Like it definitely hurts a little bit, but I can kind of like, I can be with it. Whereas before it would have been like, like a murderous attempt on my sense of self. Yeah. So having done some of that more, examination inward examination you you have uh you have a little bit more of a defense against some of this uh negative validation or um, when people don't validate you but what's interesting so i have a shared experience here because i i did this experiment on tiktok where i posted every day for 30 days and then by the the fourth week um a number of my videos went viral and so it was a success but with that, I noticed even in the positive form, my desire for validation started to give me this uh, grasping kind of energy with the activity. So it shifted from this fun thing yeah. that I was just doing, no one's watching, whatever. It's nice to talk to the camera, to wanting to get more views, to wanting to make sure like people liked me in the comments. And I noticed these things come online for me that I didn't expect. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I have a background in stoicism stoic philosophy so i thought mm-hmm. if ever i get like trolled on the internet i'm i'm probably one of the people who's going to be the most calm about it yeah. but i remember i had one video um it hit like two million views or something and some and the video was inspired by another tiktoker's video and i didn't credit her properly and so i had all this hate in the comments of all these people saying like oh this guy stole her video and they were just getting mad and they tagged her in it and I remember like my body went into fight or flight just seeing that. And I was like trying to fix it, you know, just trying to yeah. respond to these people. And it almost felt like I had this analogy where social media, the internet, especially if you're engaged and public on it, it's almost like at any moment there is a room in your house, like whatever room you're in, there's like another room that you can go into where there's a party filled with millions of people who are chaotic and some of them hate you and some of them love you. Some of them are complimenting you. Some of them are angry at you just because of the way you look. And you could just mm-hmm. click into that at any moment. And if you don't have, uh, some of this emotional solvency, I think it can, 
it can be challenging even on the positive side, even when your reels are doing well. Yeah. And I think, you know, I always think of this, this might've come from our shared teacher, Andrew, but it's all like a razor's edge, right? It's like, it's this razor's edge of joy, but then like the ego comes in, whether it's the need for validation or the response to the validation. And then it's like, how do you get back to that, get off the cliff, right? And I think Mm -hmm. that that's why I love the self-awareness because it, it, it gives you a better shot. Like, look, we're still human. Like, I'm still thinking about that Instagram comment where I'm sure you still get flashbacks to that viral, you know, that viral moment, right? Uh, we're human and, and, and we're wired to, to react in, in some of those ways. But I always think of like that razor's edge. And for me, it's like it is that, that validation. I, I always ask myself, like, if, if I wouldn't get validated for this thing, would I still do it? Right. 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 Like, would I still write this essay if like one person read it, but didn't even I mean, even look at me qualifying? It's like, if no one would I still do it if no one read it? Right. I'm just a, mm-hmm. it's a very hard. Like, would you write? I, let me ask you, would you would you what's like your your favorite craft of, of Internet creation, like podcasting or probably writing videos, writing? So if you like had this great idea and you were like excited to write it, uh, like a, a blog post, let's say. But you knew that no one would, no, let's say, let's say, you would write it, you would get all the joy of writing it, and as soon as you were done editing it, someone would hit delete. Mm. Like, would you would you still do it? You know, um, I think I would, but for a very particular yeah. reason, which is, oh yeah, I spent like 10 or 11 years journaling before I ever published anything online mm-hmm. and the experience of, of the, like, and most of my journal entries, I don't reread, right. They're, they're mm-hmm. basically like I write them and then they're deleted. And the experience of just getting to the edge of your thinking on mm-hmm. the page through journaling is always, always worth it to me. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I, that is like, um, fulfilling, in and of itself. But I did notice that once I started to publish things and get feedback for it, my motivations would tilt and it's like that razor's edge. Mm -hmm. So I think I could kind of rest back on the journaling, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's not, it's not easy when there's this temptation to get validation. Yeah. I don't think I could do it. Uh, Maybe you're not a journaler. I'm not a journaler. So that's one thing. Uh, but I think there's a part of me that, that right. Like, a lot of what I do is like in service of helping. But again, I might be tricking myself mm. and being like, is it the service of helping or is it the validation that you get when you help someone, right? They're two very different things, like tree kind of a tree falling and, and no one being there to hear it, right? It's like the, one of those situations. So I, I always I always question those things. And I, and I, and I, I don't know, but I do know that like, I still have a very strong desire to be validated and, Mm. you know, I'm trying to observe that I'm trying, I think that that is the next step in my healing, like or growth journey is to really let go of that. And I honestly, I think the internet makes it hard to let go of that because anything you do could be validated. And especially like you said, when you get good at it, you you know you're like oh if i take this picture right now like i'm gonna get a lot of validation right right and it's it, like it, it it scares me a bit because it's it's very distorting it distorts like the world 
I think, um, and let's say, like you said, that's like the cost of being good at it, the perils of being good at it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So two things. One, I remember someone telling me that whenever you grow, uh, the ego always levels up as well. So it's like, um, mm -hmm. it's kind of like your shadow. And so you might accomplish all these goals in your life, but that part of you, if you're not attending to it, if you're not attending to your ego tendencies, then you're always going to be wrestling with them. A great example of this is, um, uh, Neil Strauss, he wrote, uh, the game, which was a book about pickup okay. artists. And then I think dating 15 game, years right? later, yeah. what's that? Was it a dating game or a dating yeah. book? It yeah. was about dating. It was about basically learning how to, how to seduce women. And then mm -hmm. I think 10 years later, he wrote a, a book called the truth, which is about, um, basically doing all this inner work because he's blowing up his marriage. Cause he got it. Uh, he's, he's, going to rehab for sex addiction and oh, wow. you it's like the two sides of of the same psyche basically like in the first case he solved all his insecurities with women yeah. problems by getting oh, good at seduction God. and in the second he Oof, he's going goosebumps. yeah it's it's a it's a good read it's a good read is it is it good like you, you should read the pairing obviously uh i think yeah but i think the the truth the second one is worth reading on its own um, okay. It's very raw. It's, it's, uh, yeah. But, um, I think it's a good time to introduce a term, which, uh, I'm sure you're familiar, familiar with. Um, it's, uh, so you, when you were saying that your meditation is thinking about, like you said, I am special and then I am nothing. Right. Yeah. Um, that reminded me of this concept, uh, called, uh, samskara mm -hmm. and I, I'm assuming this is something you're familiar with. And my kind of working definition right now is ego tendencies that we've had since God knows when, like maybe because of the way we were raised, maybe there's genetic reasons, maybe there's ancestral reasons, who knows, but everybody has a few samskaras, a few of these emotional patterns that generate almost like a, like an avatar or a personality that has mm -hmm. desires and needs and wants the world to appear a certain way and does so mm -hmm. in a manner that is unconscious and that compromises your perception of what actually is happening in the present. And, mm -hmm. um, I'll share one of my samskaras just to make it, uh, um, a little more relatable. It's usually an I am statement because it's asserting a sense of self and for me, one that comes up a lot is I am the proud, unimpeachable seer, you know, the one who sees what's mm -hmm. happening. And I know this comes from growing up in a household where it was very adaptive to know exactly what was happening in everybody's situation and everyone's emotional mm -hmm. world at all times and learning how to manage that. But I noticed that that noticing tendency has this e egoic quality associated with it. And it leads me to mm. act out this, this personality of some, almost like detachment, um, but also mm. a lot of uh, criticism and it's self-criticism too. Mm. And the way this has showed up for me, uh, even coming back to this TikTok example, is it makes it hard to tolerate cringe because you can see, you can see when mm. you're doing something that's falling short and that mm. ego tendency mm. gets, gets, um, gets attacked. Um, I have, I have a lot I could say about some scars, but yeah. is there anything, uh, that, that you want to share? I, I think so for me, one is 
is around I am good. Mm. And the being perceived as good, and again, is it like morally good or is it nice or likable? But I, I try very hard to be likable. Uh, it puts me in some, some strange places because mm. it, uh, you know, sometimes I, I become likable at my own expense, right? So I will, you know, burn myself out or put myself in situations that I don't really want to be in. Not a, another way of emotional detachment, right? Like if this person likes me but is, you know, not treating me well, like I can detach from that part just to preserve the likability, right? And so I think mm -hmm. for, so so this like concept of, of good and that's why the Instagram comment is like, you're a shill, right? Um, mm. And I'm like, no, I'm a good person. Like, don't tell me I'm not, a, don't call me a bad person. I am a good person. And I, I think I even, I rarely respond to trolls, but I, re I responded in that case. I was like, I have nothing to sell you, you know, um, which is true on Instagram, but it's not actually true in like the broader portfolio of activities. Um, so this concept of like being perceived as good, that I am good and putting myself, you know, on some kind of high ground through actions, through uh, self-aggrandizing, self through virtue signaling in different ways to protect a part of me that is so afraid of the, the shadow of that as being perceived as bad mm -hmm. and being alone and being rejected and being unworthy of love and ultimately like living a life of, of despair and isolation. Right. And I think the ultimate one is like the death of the ego, which is like no one bats an eye when I'm gone. Mm. Right. Which is such an egoic thought of like, how do people talk about me when I'm gone? You know, like when I'm out of my physical body, but, um, that's how I see those, some, some scars connecting. Are you familiar with the Enneagram? I am. I mean, at a, the highest level, I am, but but I've never taken it. I, if you, you, you're you going to quote me like a four-letter combo or whatever, I forget which one it is. Right, uh, right. I won't know what it means. You'll have to explain it to me. Um, I'll just say like a quick thing about it, but it's a, it's a personality model um, that uh, has nine types. And it's one of yeah. these that doesn't have any... Uh, backing by Western scientific methods. Um, there's no psychometric mm -hmm. research on it as far as I'm aware. And I have a good friend who's a clinical psychologist who, who did her PhD on psychometrics. And she said that she uses the Enneagram in her clinical practice and she doesn't use the five factor model. She doesn't use all these scientifically validated personality models. And I thought it was very interesting. And the reason she gave was it, uh, it's the most practical in terms of giving a direction for growth. So if you know your type, it gives you a direction for what, uh, what traits you need to integrate, but coming back to some scars, and this is maybe something the listeners can do. It's actually a pretty good starting point to figure out what your, some scars might be because mm. each type has its own deep fear and its own mm. deep aspiration. And Often when I show this to people, they read the types and they really resonate with one of them. 
So that's mm. something for people to look up. And if I were to guess, I'd say you're probably a a type one or a type three. Okay. Um, maybe. What, and so maybe, what are the deep fears? I don't know them by memory. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's something that uh, maybe I'll send you some stuff to, to look up. Okay, after. cool. Yeah, please do. Yeah. I'm curious also to see the other ones because I'm, I'm so, I'm so, uh, I, there's a lot of what I perceive maybe it's my ego of like my archetype in this world that we're in. Mm. And so that's, I believe where a lot of the resonance on my stories because I can share something like I just shared and a, a bunch of people will be like, I feel that I'm a people pleaser because of that too. Right. right? And so I'm curious, but I, it makes me a little, uh, echo chambery to know that like what are the other fears and what are the mm. like for example i talk i often talk about fear of death and with like male alpha types they like truly it's like that, that egoic death like that relevance like i want my name on a building i want people to remember me like that is a very visceral feeling for a lot of hard charging high performing men that that i've mm -hmm. encountered but when i share that with high performing women a lot of them don't feel that like there, there's a much more like nurturing, like when you ask, when I ask men in that, in my peer group, like, why are you afraid of dying? They're like, cause people will forget me. Hmm. And when I ask kind of like what I would think to be the, like the equivalent group of women, they're like, who's going to take care of my loved ones? That's the first question that arises. Right. And it's like, so like, it's so basic, right? And it, I, I, I hate saying it in, in some way because it fuels so many stereotypes, what I just said. Um, but I'm just kind of like, wow, like you, like the the women readers of our Rad Reads, they're like, I don't resonate with your fear of death the way you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's talk about this because the fear of death has been looming mm -hmm. throughout this conversation so far. Um, <laughs> how does death anxiety show up in your life? I think in the, so the first memory of this is this kind of recurring nightmare that I had as a kid. And it, it's like, you know, the star Wars intro where like there's the, you're in this, I'm not a good star Wars person, but you're in the, one of the spaceships and the stars are coming through the you and there's like once upon it. Um, and so there's, so in this dream, there's these stars coming at me, or I guess they're moving away. And there's this rock and the rock symbolizes my essence. And as the stars move away, the rock gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and it just disappears. And that is like, that dream is seared into my head, probably like age seven-ish. Wow. And I tried to explain it to people and they just didn't understand it. Um, and what I think it represents, I would always kind of put that in the category of like, I'm scared of the, of being a finite creature being in an infinite spectrum of time. Mm -hmm. And again, I think the elongation of the time shows that like, not only are you finite, but your finiteness is more reinforced by the infinite, you know, juxtaposed against the infiniteness. So I think that was like the first starting point. I think that when I got older or in my young adulthood, it was like 
there's never enough time, right? I'm sure you see this all the time. There's never enough time. And I think there was this, I hear this often from my students, like there's there's so much I want to do in life and there's just like not enough minutes in the day, right? I think mm-hmm. I had that. And maybe it's a bit of like a scarcity thinking. I don't know exactly. I struggle with that one. It could be fun to talk about if we have time. Uh, but then it, what I really realized maybe in my 30s is I fear irrelevant. So it's actually not the physical death and it's not the like FOMO like experience FOMO let's call it death FOMO like ah shit I won't be able to do this but it's it is this 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 like sad fact that like no one like uh, there's this Alex Hermosi tweet he's like you're gonna die one like if you're scared of writing online you're gonna die one day a bunch of people won't show up to your funeral because they have uh, competing commitments. Some people will get on their phones and at the end of the day, they'll go back to their cars and get, get on with their lives. And I was just like, I'm like, oh my God, like that's that's my fear, right? Mm. And I think it's like, it's lessened its grip on me. I do think like, I think the the, the science, the scientist in me is like, like wrestles with this concept of like infinite time. It just, it still feels a little scary, but not as scary. I don't like space movies because mm. it makes, it shows how big time or how finite we are, how minuscule we are. So I think there's this element of like, basically like I, I'm, I don't want my ego. I, I'm scared of an ego death. I think that's where I get land, but it's kind of manifested in different ways in different parts of my life. So if you had a high degree of certainty that you were going to have monuments built for you and an extensive, well-maintained Wikipedia page, and uh, mm-hmm. you'd be taught, people would teach about you in schools and stuff, and you mm-hmm. saw all the evidence for this before you died, would that assuage the fear of irrelevance? Such an Andrew question. Um, <laughs> uh no, it wouldn't. And and I think I think that's where I get stuck is like like I want an answer to it all and there's no to my best there's no answer to to this. So so no, I think in the I think my actions would indicate that I believe that. But if mm-hmm. I just you asking the question, I, I think I do think that that still motivates whether it's like you know, being an internet entrepreneur in service of helping others, like it's motivated by what you just said. So at a subconscious level, um, but at a conscious, but if I, if you pose me the question, I'm like, that's, that's absurd. Just like the Alex Hormozzi tweet is, is so real. Like you can't deny that. Um, so, uh, so, so to answer your question, no, it wouldn't assuage, but I still subconsciously act like it will in many of my behaviors and i want to i want to really that's where my examination needs to keep going because it's still happening it's definitely not happening with the same iron grip that it used to happen it's definitely not happening with the same uh uh agony that it used to happen with but it's still happening i lost you for a sec you're back. Oh, you broke up. I said it's yeah. still happening. I, you probably, and then I stopped talking. Oh, okay, good. Um, so you probably have the natural edit there. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll share um, 
where the way death anxiety shows up for me, maybe it might give the listeners a couple, couple examples to play with. I think it's similar, but I wouldn't phrase it that way because I, I don't think of it as legacy, but I feel like this, it's like the fear of wasted potential. Like you have a finite amount of time and you just didn't use it well. You know, the regret Mm. you're sitting on, on your deathbed and you're like, fuck, I just wasted my time or I just Mm. didn't live authentically enough or I just didn't do enough of the meaningful things that I wanted to do. And it's actually a very Mm. clarifying question um, that if you really meditate on it, I think it can uh, dramatically change your life. And this is going to be confrontational to me as I say this, but it's, um, and if you want, you can answer this. I, I didn't really mean to ask it to you, but it's, uh, what, what do you need to do before you die? And there's certain things that will come up. Like for instance, for me, I know that I need to achieve a certain level of, uh, musical proficiency and creative output in order to feel like I can, I can die satisfied. I feel like there's like a karmic, an open karmic loop Mm. when it comes to being a musician that if it's not satisfied, I'm just, I'm going to feel like, fuck, I, I wasted, Mm. (laughs) I wasted my life. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I, I think of this in a few ways. One is that I, I think like the hedonic adaptation stuff that we were talking about earlier, it's like, I know what traditional success feels like. And I know that probably sounds so pretentious, um, but it's not, it's, it's nice, but it's not the thing. So like, I don't feel like I chase that as overtly on the, on the flip side, it's also buttressed by like, you know, the follow the fun to some extent is a very kind of present seek present maximizing mm-hmm. Uh, so there's like some, probably some like quasi Buddhism in that, right. That's like, just do what's fun right now. Right. And so I feel, I used to have the, the regret part, like wasted potential part, but I feel very lucky that in my life now, it's like, if I want to like, if I wanted to become a film producer tomorrow, I'd be like, let's go try it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I would find a way and I wouldn't, I think that emotional solvency point, I wouldn't hold myself back from it. If anything, the risk would be be jeopardizing the things that I really care about in service of that. And that's where I think the, that that for me is like where the ego will come in and like turn it into a relevance marker. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. like you could make this beautiful movie that like like people will talk about. Right. And like that is like the pressure there comes. I think the interesting thing we talked about it earlier is surfing. Mm-hmm. Surfing is this kind of weird weird activity especially when you start it later in life where you just you're not going to be good at it right it's just the reality is like it's just like any sport it's very hard to be very good at it Mm. so you have this sport like surfing but you also like it's if it's a very um inefficient sport because there's a lot of sitting around and like the best wave like if you're like the best wave and it's like eight seconds Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. you're like activity to to time committed ratio is off the charts bad. Right. And but but it has this weird thing. It transcends like you talk to any surfer, I'm sure you do in Lisbon, like they will tell you that like in 1997, they had this amazing wave and it came from this because the swell was coming here 
and they can show you how their body was positioned in the way like it has this uh, there's like an outer bodiness to it where like literally time melts away where like you could say like even someone like me i've served you know 500 days in my life it's probably like i don't know 27 minutes worth of waves right <laughs> like a crazy it's a crazy thought like for a, a time maximizer but i think surfing is this like interesting thing because we realize what i've realized with surfing is that it's less about like yes it's awesome to catch good waves and do maneuvers and all that but i get not just as much but i get a lot of joy from just putting on my wetsuit mm. right and kind of like it's your dishwashing tiktok tweet uh tiktok tweet tiktok video it's like just like the the routineness the ritualness the i don't even want to use the word mon the everydayness of it and that's where you see there's like surfing and then there's a surfer's lifestyle, mm. which is almost more like a way of being where the activity is one of the parts of it. So it, we got on a little tangent as it relates to death. But I think that I feel very blessed that like I used to think of surfing as this thing like I need to get good at it. Like every year I need to ride a shorter board. I need to learn more maneuvers and all that. And now I just like have fun and like see the homies in the water and we like get tacos after and we talk about waves all the time, but it doesn't, it's lost the achievement side of it has um, lessened its grip on it. And I'm, I'm, I'm hope I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that as I get older, anything that is kind of achievement or goal related will start to feel the lessening of, of the grip. Yeah. It's you, you want to do things for their own sake and it's even mm -hmm. better if, the things that you're doing for your own sake are making the future better. So it's kind of yeah. like you're achieving goals as a byproduct of it. Mm -hmm. But the goal is not the goal. The goal is to, to do things for its own sake. It's like when people mm -hmm. say it's about the journey and not the destination, it's cliche, but um, it really is. It, it's true. It's ideally it's the way we want to live. Mm -hmm. um, I want to ask you, do you think more people should quit their jobs? Um, quitting your job is not for the faint-hearted. Um, there's the financial component, for sure, and and I've seen this. I was reading a story about a, a like a billionaire in Germany, and he was invested in like Porsche or something, and it lost like seventy percent in one day. And so he went from being like a billionaire to someone who had like three hundred million dollars, and he like walked in front of a train killed himself wow um and so it's like i always tell people like no matter how much money you have if you've only watched your bank account go up it is terrifying to see it flatline or go down so mm. the finance that's the financial component the second thing is i always challenge people is this a push or is it a pull Right. I say, like, if you are if you want to quit your job because you have low self-confidence, well, in your next venture, you're probably going to have low self-confidence. If you want to quit your job because you, um, you know, your inner critic is gnarly. Um, well, in your next thing, your inner critic's still going to be gnarly. So, like, if you're if you're if you think that leaving the job is going to solve the inner challenges, like, think again. But the converse of that, the flip side of that is if. If 
there is a pull, right? And again, I can speak from my own experience, like these, like the newsletter and these little projects, like crypto and like they were all little pulls. And I was like, I was being pulled away from something. I hadn't done the inner work yet, but I was being pulled away because my job was fine. I didn't, I didn't hate it at all. Mm. And it was not that difficult. Um, and so that, that would be something that, uh, that I would encourage. And in a more pragmatic sense, I would encourage people to, the beauty of the internet is you can experiment without, I mean, oh, the other thing is that most people are not ready for, I wasn't ready for is the loss uh, of identity. Mm -hmm. Quitting your job is an identity earthquake. And you could be a consultant, a designer, a product manager, and then you walk into a room where everyone is lit, putting out their status credentials on the page. And you're like, uh, I'm figuring it out. What? I'm a 43-year-old man, father of two, figuring it out? That most people are not ready for that. I wasn't ready for that. And again, that comes with the inner work. It's like, where do you build up your sense of self? It's that emotional solvency that we talked about. Um, so those are, uh, the, and what, what I was saying is like the beauty of the internet is that we can experiment now. Like if you think there's a calling, you know, your calling might be, you know, selling knit hats for kids. Like make a bunch of knit hats and, and open up an Etsy store. What you're going to realize is like you got to learn marketing. Like you like marketing. You're going to realize you're going to have to learn social. Do you like social? Right. You can de-risk at least the learn. Like do I like this thing? And I think people look at our, our our entrepreneurship lives and they're like, oh, like your lives are so great. And like my life is great. But if you saw, I've written 383 consecutive newsletters. Like, do you want that? Because mm -hmm. part of a big part of my business success is the fact that I did that. Do you want to do that? Are you willing to do that? Because that's the like, you're on a plane, you don't have bad, you, you have shitty Wi-Fi, you you lost a copy of the thing you were going to write. Like your kids got COVID. Like, are you going to do it? Right. And you don't have to do it every time. But I'm just saying that like you, you there, there's going to be, if you can preview as much of that as possible without mm. the identity quake, with the health insurance, if you live in the US, with the income, without watching your bank account go down, de-risk it as much as you can. Yeah, I love uh, how you're keeping it real with that. Kate, do you have any closing thoughts for the listeners? Anything you want to leave people with? Oh, man, what do I want to leave people with? Um, I just want to, I want to leave people with just uh, a, a remark. Anyone that's listening, like, I just want to tell you, uh, and you as well, Daniel, like, you are enough just the way you are. Like, you do not need to crank out more blog posts. You do not need a promotion. You, don't, you are enough as you are right now. You always have been enough and you always will be enough. And I hope that that, you know, I've, I've, I've referred to kind of the iron grip of certain of these some, some scar related, um, you know, uh, pathology. I mean, that's not the right word, but this, the, these these some scars, how they hold us. And so many of them start from this, from a starting point of not enoughness. But 
We all, every single one of us are enough and we have started from that point. So that's, I hope that that brings some, I, I suspect that there's some strivers in the audience. Uh, and I hope that that lessens that iron grip just a bit, lets you smile a little, uh, a little bit more, love a little bit more openly, and unclench your heart. Okay, thank you so much for this conversation today. <laughs>